think it's very important if you do have a, an outrageous goal is to share it. And I call it declare. Declare it to those that will lift you up, not bring you down. Declare it to you, whether it's an accountability coach, whether it's your boss, whether it's a friend, whether it's people that will make sure that they're on board. Be very careful on who you declare that to because it could be somebody that loves you an incredible amount but may doubt that you can do this or may doubt right, right. you for taking on too much or having too many balls up near or whatever. So be very careful because that could be the most loving person in your life, just not a good person to declare something right, right. to go after. I love my beautiful mom. I have to redirect her. There's things that like I won't declare to the point where I know I need that feedback. But right, when right. I say things to my kids, I know that I have to have that commitment because I'm setting this example. My kids are adult children now and a teenage daughter, but I have to declare that to them and follow through because I want them to understand that we have to hold on to our commitments. We can fail. You can fail. But if your intention is to get to that goal line or the finish line here, you need to stick with your commitment. And that's building integrity as well. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation. Scott Peckford here. Today on the show, I have Bill Murphy. Bill is a loan officer from Auburn, Massachusetts. Love this conversation with Bill. He's also a writer of a book called Driving Through the Storm. And we really dove into primarily mindset, how important mindset is, how to build a strong mindset how to, to maintain it. You know, we're in a market right now that is a lot more challenging than it has been. And there's, you know, challenges for different reasons. And mindset is the thing that honestly, you've got to make sure you take care of. Otherwise you can easily get derailed. And I really enjoyed my conversation with Bill. Also on this episode, I talked to Ben McCabe from Bloom about the maturity process of reverse mortgage. Before I jump into that, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application document collection submission platform designed specifically for Canadian borrowers. It's very easy to use. And it's got some really cool features like smart docs. It knows exactly the documents that you're going to need based on the application. It's got smart submission notes. It knows what it needs to put in the app when you're sending it into your lenders. And it's connected to Lender Spotlight, which is the best tool for searching rates and guidelines. Check them out at lendescom slash Finmo and check out this conversation with Bill. Hey, Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Scott. Super excited to be here today. So, hey, man, you've got lots of stuff that you can talk about. You've got a very deep background and understanding in mortgages as well as mindset development. And the topic in particular I'm interested in is mindset because we talk lots about mortgages on the show. But before we do that, maybe tell a little bit about your backstory. Like, how did you get here? How did you end up, you know, 25 years in the mortgage business and with a book and all that stuff? Yeah, man, like every mortgage originated, you know, as a young kid, I dreamed about mortgages, right? Not one person I've ever met was lifelong dream to be in the in kindergarten. I'm going to finance stuff, man. Never, Look at me, you know, <laughs> never, ever, not sexy, nothing, nobody wants to get in it. Everybody falls into it. And that's just kind of, that's kind of the story. Same here. I had a background in counseling site. I worked for a juvenile lockup and call it a jail guard and a counselor got burnt out, uh, was looking to get into police work. And I was waiting for residency out in uh, California. It was called the California Highway Patrol. And while I was waiting for residency, I needed a job while I was waiting. So telemarketed for a mortgage company for six months. And what I found was 
I was really doing a lot of active listening and kind of counseling people. It was back in the subprime days, you know, lousy credit, you know, just trying to get a mortgage. And so it was a lot of people sharing their problems. I kind of fell in love with it. And then when the California Highway Patrol came calling six months later, I had made so much money in the first four months that I never dreamed of making, you know, that I would have made in a year and a half's time and working in police work. And I loved it. I was like, I'm all set. I think this is going to be my Nobody's going to shoot at me or hit me with their car by accident while I'm standing on the side of the highway. Like it's definitely safer from a, you know, nine to five perspective. Well, if you got an angry bar, I mean, who knows, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Anything's possible, I guess. But okay, so you ended up here by accident, like most of us. Yeah. And then, so tell me about your personal production and stuff. So I want to just get a sense of like, you know, how did it go in the mortgage career? So you jumped four months, six months went really well. How did it go for the last little bit? Like, tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I instantly gained some success and everywhere I went, you know, I was a top producer. The company I'm with now has been there 15 years and this year I'll have done a billion and a half in personal originations over my career. So enjoy a little bit of success, even with ups and downs in our crazy industry. And so last year I did 62 million the year before I did 132 million. So it was down a little bit, you know, three years in a row over hundred million of personal production. Right. Is your business previous to the crap? Was it refi business purchase? Was it, what was the mix like? Yeah, I've probably been 65, 35. Now I'm definitely, 95.5 in purchase. So right. That's everybody. Cause the only people refining are doing it because they have to, like, yeah. it's not a, you know, okay. That makes sense. And then what prompted you to write the book that you came up with? So the story kind of went this way. It was actually to help not only people with their mindset, but just, I was actually thinking about, you know, mortgage origination. So, you know, we all have goals. We all set these goals with our numbers and, you know, I was stuck. Like I managed to be a top producer nationally around the 65 to just under 70 million for like 10 years, right? I would goal set. I would come up with new strategies. I would do different things. And I just could not break through that. So like there was a pattern I couldn't identify. Well, I'm a sports enthusiast. I do a lot of endurance racing and, and running and stuff. In 2019, I had done the Boston Marathon and I didn't really prepare like I normally do um, with I took it for granted, put it that way. I didn't get my nutrition in. I didn't do a lot of things, right? So I'm, I'm doing this Boston Marathon. The weather started off, and being from Canada, you can understand the crazy weather. I think it started off in the 30s, raining sideways. It ended up warming up to the high 60s, maybe 70s, sunny. And then by the time we finished the marathon, it was cold, rainy, and windy again. So it was just a crazy day, but the nutrition really messed with me. And I was cramping up all over the place. So I was so angry with myself that I was just saying, like, how do people run a marathon is one thing, but then how do these marathoners do like Ironmans where they're swimming to 24 miles, biking 112, and then putting the cherry on top of the marathon after that. And like, oh, was, I know that's just, it's bonkers to me. Like that is a level of crazy that I can't even wrap my head around. Right. So thinking that I just had the idea at that time, I was like, you know what, I'm going to do an Ironman. And then, so I finished the marathon. I'm kind of mad at myself. So you're not even, did you think of this when you were in the middle of the marathon was that was sucking or was it after? Because I was mad. No, I was so angry at myself. I was like, I'm going to try to just push these. I took it for granted. I'm going to push these limits to the next, the next level. So I didn't have a bike and I hadn't swam in 30 years. Right. But I said, I'm going to do it in six months. So I talked to all these coaches. They say, you can't do this. You cannot. And that's not a lot of time to train because you got to put a lot of volume of hours on the bike and stuff. Yeah. All that, right. 
So I found a rookie coach that said, you know what, I'll coach you, I'll work with you, we'll figure it out. So I went and did all the things I needed to do to get ready. And the anxiety was so, um, it was riddling, right? The anxiety. So I almost quit in the pool the first few days and got out after two laps. You know, I fell down test driving my bike in front of the bike shop with everybody watching because I was clipped in and didn't know how to clip out. Like these I've, things- done, I've happened to me before. I stop first time ever with clips, get to a stop sign. I'm like, holy, and bam, down I go like a sack of hammers and I feel oh, like gosh, so dumb. Right. <laughs> right, but so here I am saying I'm gonna do an Ironman and I'm falling down. And you're the- falling on the bike because you can't get your foot out of the clips. <laughs> yeah, right. So all that happens in the first two days of signing up for this Ironman that I said I'm gonna do in six months. And meanwhile, you know, my business was just stuck at that 65 million. I trained like crazy, probably trained, you know, up to 30 hours a week, you know? So I go, the marathon was in April, the Ironman was in November. In November, I went ahead and did the Ironman, finished it. So I did this Ironman, right? And I felt like not capable, not good enough, not worthy. I felt like I didn't belong, right? So that was kind of the mindset there, like, but I'm gonna do it because I put in the work. And you know what? I'll just plow through the wall and just figure it out, right? So what ended up happening this is where this is where the beauty happened was because I was so focused on putting in my training, I never missed a training day. My numbers that year in origination soared to 80 million. And it was because, right. because I let go of that incredible white knuckling grip tight hold on trying to figure it out that when I let go and release a little bit and let the processes and all the systems and everything that we had in place, just take care of itself and trust the process and trust everybody and still make sure that the team was in touch and we were in touch and we still did all the right things. It just magically happened. So like you're doing the work, right? We're not talking about people not doing the work. That's a different problem. People who are, you know, that's a whole other situation. That's, That's just prioritizing being motivated, right? But now it's saying you're doing the work. You just can't figure it out and you're stuck. Go take on a goal and immerse yourself into something else. I mean, make sure you're still taking care of what you need to take care of in your business side of things, but go figure out what you want to do. It's never too late to do something that you've always wanted to do, a version of it. I mean, if, if your dream was to, you know, be an NHL hockey player or an NFL star. Yeah, NFL for me, baby, but I just do not have the genetics for it. Scott, let's get that for you. But so if that was your dream, okay, go do something different. Go to a CrossFit gym. Go do something, a version of something that you can scale that can help you just break out of your tunnel vision on trying to get something done. So that, that's interesting. So basically what most people would say is just double down on the activities at work and you found, no, what was better for you is just to be like, no, I'm going to trust that I'm doing enough at work, but I'm actually going to do something outside of work that kind of sucks. And that's hard. And the other thing just kind of took care of itself by having that other challenging thing. I heard a quote from David Goggins. You ever read the book, Living with a Seal? Such a great book. And so in that book, he says, basically, he told to Jesse Itzler, if it doesn't suck, we don't do it. Like everything that they did sucked. And so this training for six months to go from struggling in the marathon to then deciding to do a triathlon, which is a crazy thing to do with six months of training, would have sucked a ton. And you would have had to get up and make yourself train every time. And that discipline, that mindset, obviously translated into your mortgage business as well. So that's awesome. And so one of the things he says in your book, you got ways to harden your mindset. So what are some things that I'm curious, what have 
you found to help harden your mindset? What things do you do? So, and you refer to Goggins, it's like, he calls it callousing your mind. It's just like, do the hard things that are going to bring you to stretch that stress muscle. So when we talk about that, we say, you know what, if you can run, don't walk, you know, if you can sprint, don't run, do the things that are going to make you uncomfortable because then you're going to build a little bit more resilience. And I think the resilience can carry over into that whole process. If you're just grinding on something that you just can't figure out, you go take that process and apply it somewhere else. Then you let go. Your subconscious mind already knows you want those numbers bad enough. They know you want that business to go bad. Right, right. The universe is going to deliver to you as you work through the other things. Now you can't forget about it. I'm still saying you're still putting in the work, but you're just you're letting off the gas pedal a little bit. So I love running and hiking. And so I have found some of my best ideas come when I'm out on a run and I'm away from my computer and distractions. And I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. Like, so have you found that to be like a time for you that you unlock sort of certain connections you didn't see before? God, I'm so happy you said that because I think all my journaling and all the notes from writing the book came from, you know, these long runs, these long bike rides, things like that. You know, one of the other things I want to talk about on that heart of the mind and the stress yeah. muscle that we worked on is so when I was swimming, it's all about, you know, you could coast, you could do these things called junk miles. And when you're swimming and you get your reps in, you just think that, hey, I'm swimming, I'm actually, you know, I'm making progress. But it's the drills that build up your endurance during that portion of the Ironman. So I was like, I didn't realize that because I just thought because I was putting in the miles that we we're going to translate it into the swim. Well, I did some prep races and I was like, man, I'm not ready for this. Like, this is terrible. So I had a coach, you know, get in the water and he tied this bungee around my feet and tied it to the diving platform and had you swim out for 60 seconds and it would just try to pull you under, you know, and you're just gassed and dying, you're gassed and dying. And it's like, you're swimming on a treadmill. Right. Sounds it's terrible. Right? It's, Sounds terrible. It's, it's god awful. You think you're going to die. It's like being waterboarded, right? Right. So when you're done with those 10 cycles of those 60 seconds with 10 seconds rest, when you start swimming regularly, you're going to notice your time instantly improves. Your endurance instantly improves. You instantly relax because you just built up that stress muscle there. And so many of us in our business and so many of us in our day-to-day -day lives, we're not building these muscles up. We're not hardening. We're not pushing hard enough to be able to make the, you know, so you said something junk miles. So explain to me what are junk miles and define it for me. And then I want to know what is the equivalent of junk miles in our mortgage business? Do you think? Yeah, man. Yeah. I have the mortgage business in mind. The junk miles are, you're just coasting, right? So if you're a runner and like, you know, you should be putting in better time and you're just, you're coasting, you know, you should be at a nine minute mile and you're doing, you know, a 10 30 mile and you're just not pushing yourself. You're really not getting that much better. Same in the water, swimming those junk miles. And you're just not getting any better because you're not improving. So if you added some sprints, if you added some drills to your routines, whether it's in the water, on the land, or whatever you're doing, if you take those junk miles into your business, it's like, hey, I'm going to coast through the day. I'm going to pick up the phone and casually prospect. I'm going to casually. Yeah. And I'm not going to try that hard. And if they don't answer, I'm just going to be like, thank goodness. I don't have to talk to them. And like wishing all the voicemail, yeah. wishing yeah. for a voicemail. I hope it goes to voicemail. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'll just text instead of call or I'll just send an email instead of go see them. You know, it's like, 
those are the junk miles. You're not getting any better. You're not building your business towards where it needs to go. You're coasting. So the junk miles is all about the coast. Right. Interesting. Okay. So what are the things that you find that help for hardening your mindset that for you are practices or you know principles or something that's been useful? It's do the hard things that you know are going to bring you results. I mean, when we wake up, when we wake up every morning, that little voice is telling us, hey, it's too early. You should get some sleep. It's cold outside. Like, why are you doing this to yourself? And then you give yourself an excuse not to go do it. You got to give gratitude and instantly change where you're at at that particular time to get through that process. I mean, that's my process of when I feel that way is I instantly change those feelings of worry or doubt or, you know, the devil whispering in my ear saying, you're not good enough or you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. And just kind of count those blessings because usually those worry feelings are never, ever what they seem to be. And they're never going to come true. And yet right, right. people say worry thoughts the next day. Yeah, you forget. So, okay, it sounds like you make this discipline of doing the hard thing, which could be getting up in the morning and you don't want to do it, which most people often don't because it's the hard thing. So then, but for you, a reset on your mindset would be just thinking about, hey, I'm grateful I have the health to do it. I'm grateful that, you know, I live in this place that's not Canada. And I'm just kidding. It's yeah. not as cold as Canada, although Boston can get pretty cold. So like, what kind of self-talk do you have to get yourself out of bed or to make yourself get out and hit the road, even though you don't want to? Yeah, self-talk is very important. So a lot of times when we're in a down place, right, where we're not feeling up to it or we're not feeling worthy or we might be feeling sad or depressed or angry or fearful or whatever it is, the simplest way to do that, as I just mentioned, is really to count your blessings and be thankful for what's free in your life, which is the roof over your head, your family, your kids, whatever you have going on in your life that you can be thankful for. Now your emotions immediately change and they change. When you start thinking those gratitude, now you have a little bit of peace. Now you may have happiness. It may bring a smile to your face when you're thinking about your family or your kids or your career or the wonderful things that are going on. It's a little easier to get out of bed and to move through that process when you go through that every single day. It's just being aware and noticing your mind. The other thing that kept me going when I told you I wanted to quit in the beginning is, I think it's very important if you do have a, an outrageous goal is to share it. And I call it declare. Declare it to those that will lift you up, not bring you down. Declare it to you, whether it's an accountability coach, whether it's your boss, whether it's a friend, whether it's people that will make sure that they're on board. Be very careful on who you declare that to because it could be somebody that loves you an incredible amount, but may doubt that you can do this or may doubt right, right. you for taking on too much or having too many balls up in the air or whatever. So be very careful because that could be the most loving person in your life, just not a good person to declare something right, right. to go after. I use my beautiful mother as an example because when every time I tell her I got a race coming or I tell her I got an Ironman coming, she says, Billy, you're, you're old. You're going to get hurt. You know, <laughs> she's just worried about you, right? I'm not, I'm not six on my bike right now. You know? yeah. I'll be okay. I love my beautiful mother. I have to redirect her. There's things that like I won't declare to the point where I know I need that feedback. But right, when right. I declare things to my kids, I know that I have to have that commitment because I'm setting this example. My kids are adult children now and a teenage daughter, but I have to declare that 
to them and follow through because I want them to understand that we have to hold on to our commitments. We can fail. You can fail. But if your intention is to get to that goal line or the finish line here, you need to stick with your commitment. And that's building integrity as well. Right, right. So when you talk about this idea, by the way, my mom, she always believed in whatever I was going to do. Like, I swear, if I would have said, mom, I'm going to be a bank robber. She'd be like, you're going to be a lovely bank robber. <laughs> like, you're going to be the best bank robber ever. And I'm like, you're so encouraging, even if it was unrealistic. And one of my things I hate is when people say, be realistic. I'm like, I don't want to be realistic. Like, I don't know what's possible. Maybe it is unrealistic, but you don't know if you don't at least aim at something. When you say to do the hard thing, so you talk about the hard thing, get up in the morning at six o'clock, go for a run, you know, swim. What's the hard thing that you'd see in the mortgage business? That's the first question. The second question is, what is the self-talk to make you do the hard thing that you know you need to do? You have to find those two things for me. I mean, for some people, it could be the networking that you need to do. That could be hard. You may, you know, it's hard for me. Like as much as I network and I've networked for 25 years, it's something I have a hard time doing. So that's my hard thing. So what I try to do is hold events, as many events as I possibly can, and then I can have a little bit of control on what actually, how it plays out. And these events are usually classes. So I'll hold a monthly class. And I've been doing that for 13, 14 years, and I haven't stopped. And what kind of class is it? What do you teach? CE classes, continuing ed. Is this for real estate agents or who? Real estate agents. Real estate agents, but what we just started doing, we started because mindset is such a big deal right now, and you've alluded to it earlier, Scott, is we've been doing kind of wake out some of the CEs and we've been doing mindset classes. So I teach on the mindset and, you know, so many people just right now, and especially in our industry, and I don't know if you have a lack of inventory, but with the inflation. Oh, yeah, we do. Same problem. There's very little inventory. And so then it's challenging for sellers, challenging for everybody, listing agents. It's hard. So, yeah. Yeah. So I'll teach you in the same boat, but. But originators and realtors alike are just feeling stuck. And now what's happening is because they're stuck and they're not making any money, what's going on there is they're feeling unworthy. They're feeling sad. They're feeling depressed. They're feeling all these things. Do I even belong in this business? Second guessing their talents and abilities and all the hard work they've put in over the years. So we're trying to unpack a lot of that stuff that has them feeling stuck to get them moving through that. Um, right. Yeah. I, I heard once uh, one of my coaches said to me that mindset is like, you can have a Ferrari and then the mindset is the gas. If you put no gas in that thing, it's not going anywhere. So it doesn't matter about the, you know, whatever you have the best idea, best strategy, but the mindset's the key thing. And in tougher markets, this is where you build leadership and you build way more trust and communities, not by cowering in the corner and being like, I'm just going to wait for the thing to pass. It's like, no, no, you got to get in front of this. I think right now it's like, the market will come back. This is just another cycle. Like, don't act like it's, you know, we always say, I can't believe this happened again. It's like, oh, and it will happen again. You know, like there's, and it'll be something different, but it'll, it's the same pattern over and over again. And we have to just recognize it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, it will come um, back. Yeah. And so, okay. What other things do you, have you found to be helpful for developing and maintaining your mindset? Or like the heart, you I think it was like hard in your mindset. So you have set like in your book when you got like eight ways. So I'm, I'm curious, you talked about like, you know, do the hard thing and, you know, the few other principles. So I'm curious, what are the things do you do that really help you with keeping that mindset strong? So you want to have those routines in place, right? So people are great at creating morning routines and then they blow it at night, right? Or vice versa. But you got to bookend those routines. Not only have a strong morning routine, but have a good evening routine too. So now you put it all together 
and how this can work is if you have a good morning routine where you do get up a little bit earlier than everybody else, you can get so much done. Whether you do work, whether you do mind work, whether it's meditation, journaling, you read the scriptures, meditation, whatever you need to do to get your mind right. Like I do all that and I get my workouts in the, in the morning. I'm not really strong at night. So what my, time do you typically get up? Well, because I have so much training right now, I'm, I'm up at 3, 34 o'clock. Oh my goodness. And then, so what time do you start work? <sighs> Real work starts probably eight o'clock. But, you know, while I'm making sure my day is prepped, I'm just making sure that all my emails are already ready. Everything from the night before is all good. So there's probably a half hour in that morning routine that does. It's just kind of like prepped, clean up for the day. Get organized yeah, for the day. Say, yeah. Don't check your email until you finish 90 things. That can work. There's no set way. And I, I'm just giving you ideas. I'm not saying everything. Yeah, it's not prescriptive, but you got to have awesome. something that works for you. So, you know, honestly, I'll have my coffee and take some vitamins and have a little bit of something to eat right before I work out. And that's when all my emails and that's when all my calendar is checked and everything. My, I know I revisit my day. Then I get to the workout, right? So I'm done there. And then, you know, that's part of the routine. You know, when you come back now, when you have stress coming at you during the day, and we know this business can be stressful. And especially when everybody's biting you on, you got multiple offer situations, you have high interest rates and you're competing against your competitors. Like you have all this stuff going on. When you have a great morning, you're able to handle that stress so much better during the day than if you had a morning that you didn't get out of bed, that you hit snooze 17 times, got into a fight with the kids on the way to school or whatever your day is that's getting thrown at you with curveballs. If you have a strong morning routine, you're going to be so much more prepared to handle that. So let's take that a step further. Now, I see so many people in this business and I've managed so many loan officers and I call the loan officers that aren't prepared from the stress that happens and they don't really have good routines that they end up in mediocrity. So there's so many mediocrity. What does that look like? I used to say the realtor can't find the loan officer because the loan officer is hiding under his desk, avoiding the calls. And so because there's a tough phone call that needs to be made, they bail or they'll go hit golf balls or they'll go to the bar or whatever. They'll bail on the day because they didn't set themselves up right to handle what some of the things that they have to do. Now, there's some character things and traits and things that we can get into, but you're so much better off if you prepare that. Now, let's take that a step further to the end of the day. When you finish your day, be very careful on what you're feeding mind and what you're getting done with. So, I mean, I know so many people that will throw back three glasses of wine or have a six pack of beer every single night. And I just think that that's not a healthy way to end your day every single no. night. Now, hey, you want to reward yourself or have a vice or whatever here and there, that's fine. Or it's a weekend thing. I don't care. But there's no way that you're going to be able to Netflix, binge watch, you know, drink your three glasses of wine have your cheesecake and whatever every single day and then be able to function and then finish your night watching the news about everything bad that happened around you. That is just not a good way to end your day and feed your mind and body to wake up and be prepared the next day. So when I say bookend your day, if you create those routines, listen, if you want to say, hey, on Wednesday night and Saturday night, I'm going to have a Netflix night with my wife or my husband or wh whatever it is yeah. have a date night do whatever you want to do but just make sure you have the other routines to help right. you manage 
those days because the stress can get the best of us. So just, you know, that's kind of how I look at it. And I've just seen so many loan officers, the ones that have the routines are usually the ones that are able to handle it way better. And they'll push through it. Yeah. You know, one of the things I've thought about recently is like everybody talks about the morning routine. I think it's the bedtime routine actually, because you have no morning routine. If your bedtime routine, it's actually you won or lost it the night before. And it's, did you stay up? Like you said, you drank six beer, you watched, you know, whatever. And then in the morning you're like, oh man, I'm ready to get going. I remember I used to play hockey, like men's hockey. And so we would finish at about 1130 at night and you have beer and then I go home, you try to sleep and like, well, you're just finished like, you know, and so you can't fall asleep right away. So then one of my colleagues from my hockey player buddies is like, hey, you should just drink NyQuil. Like terrible idea, right? Drink NyQuil so you can fall asleep. So here I am, I come home, I drink NyQuil. Well, the next day I'm wrecked till noon. Like I'm literally useless. I quit hockey. I was like, look, this is costing me a fortune in lost opportunity. And yeah, it's fun. It was not worth the trade-off of the lack of sleep and the loss of at least a half a day of productivity so that I could go play hockey at till whatever time at night. Right. So, and I'm not recommending this as, as not a prescriptive, do not take NyQuil to help you sleep. It was a bad idea. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, that's interesting, you know, and then also, careful right, what you just, yeah, you just, that great example. Not so sure. Yeah. And then the news too, like one of the things I think about a lot too, is just like the news is about like negative events. We sell, like, you know, we basically sell negative events. A million people, they get home safely the one person that's in an accident is the one they talk about. So then it puts you in a cortisol state of just stress. You're just like, oh my gosh. Like, And I find for me, I've got to really block all that stuff out. Here's the thing I think, and you talk about gratitude. We live in a time that's so amazing and people are missing it. Like literally I can go to Costco and get blueberries from South America that are still fresh, that traveled all this way, eat them and they're amazing. A king couldn't do that 120 years ago. And yet I can do it today and I act like, oh my gosh, my life sucks. And I'm like, are you really? Like, are you missing how good we have it if you actually stopped and thought about it? But I think most people are focused on the wrong things. That's just my... Here's a trick. And this is something that I worked on over the years. And I've told this to a few people and it seems to work, right? So you talk about the news, we talk about these things. Now, you know, let's just say there's a big election coming up and people are for weeks are glued to the TV or they're glued to their streaming or whatever to know what's going on with this election. And they have to tune in and watch eight, nine, 10 hours a day. They just like know everything. Right. So this election comes and passes. And the next day, if you spent zero time understanding what was going on in that election to somebody that spent the last two weeks and say 40 hours glued to the TV, you could get on the internet and in probably 15 minutes, have an intelligent conversation with that person that consumed 40 hours of taking in that news. So why would you waste your time on that stuff? I won't say garbage, but on that stuff when you can be so much more productive. Now let's take another step further. I used to be a sports radio junkie. Like I would consume sports radio and I would listen to sports radio, listen to sports radio, listen to sports radio everywhere I go. And a friend of mine, she said, that's men's soap opera. And I was like, you're kind of right. And Ouch. <laughs> I still love it, right? But I will listen to podcasts. I will listen to a great personal development book. I'll listen to something that I can feed my mind with. And if I want to break in a reward, you know what? I'll turn on 20 minutes of some sports radio. So I plan it as a reward as opposed to, because I know I could just Google what happened in the game. Yeah. Anything that I want to know about the sports world in five minutes and know what I would have just, if I listened for four hours. So if right. you take that approach, because it's usually entertaining, it's usually 
you know, sexy or there's drama or whatever there is about these things we're glued to. But if you say, you know what, I'm going to feed my mind and body with just good stuff right now. And if I want to know what's happening, I have it at my fingertips or I'll just ask somebody that already does all that, you know, and say, right, right. like, I never check the weather. I just, I'll call my mother and say, mom, what's the weather? Cause she has the weather channel on our TV all day long. You know, right. You know, That's like so awesome. I'll get the best weather report you'll ever get from any news person from my mom because yeah, she's because she's she's watching it. That's you know, I think that it all depends on. For me, I've got things that I want to accomplish, and if it's not helping me building that towards that, then I'm like, I gotta really, it's gotta fight for my attention. Why am I feeding myself this? Whether whatever that is, and so so okay, you talked about having a morning routine. You talked a little bit about the you know the bedtime routine. Just okay, what time do you go to bed to get up at four o'clock in the morning? Tell me about that because this is something, as I said, I've been fascinated with this idea of a bedtime routine because I've been uh, well, just because the routine, it's by no later than nine, but typically if it's not quite as early, it's going to be by ten. So you know, if I try to get six hours solid. In every single night, I know you're supposed to do more than that. You know, sleep, I used to think was overrated, you know, early on in my career, you know, less sleep, you know, will give me more production in hours. It doesn't work that way. Um, you can't know. I read a book, Why We Sleep. If you ever want a great book on, it's very yeah. technical, but I was like, man, this is, so I got myself a sleep mask, you know, like oh, those little ladies do, bought them for my kids. I'm like, this thing is awesome. Cause I think it's a superpower that often we're untapped because we're, most people are slightly depleted in sleep take it for granted and, and then so before that bed is usually gratitude a little bit of prayer and i'll write something in my journal you yeah know, i just, gotta start doing more like i find sometimes I'm, lately i've been just getting sucked into like you know you're on your phone and then that's the worst thing you can be doing you gotta you know the worst thing you can do before you go to bed there's so, a, there's okay. a trick, Scott. shut your phone off like well, you know, do not disturb on an hour before you go to bed Right. I mean, I can disturb my phone. I'd be like, you're not disturbing me, but I'm going to come disturb you. Okay, what's on Instagram? And I'm like, oh, thank well, yeah, like, the, the vibrations and the sounds and everything else, at least if you turn that down. you. you, you now, I'm just going there because it's not even calling to me. I'm just fine lately. I, I was doing really good on the bedtime routine. Then I got off track and anyway, yeah. I, I got to tighten it up. So any other like advice you have for a mortgage broker loan officer right now in this market where it's more challenging than it's been? What would your advice be to them to you know help them? Because if they keep the mindset right, man, all of it's going to sort itself out. Just give it time. Like yeah, basics here. Let's go to basics. Like you know, if you have a database, call five to ten people a day. Just check in. I don't care if you closed them last year or three years ago. Just check in. That cannot hurt. You know, make sure your social media is tight with all your stuff that you're doing. Make sure it's relevant and you're giving value. Again, if you can explore the classes or even have somebody help you with classes, that would be great go to all the networking agent realtor activities as you possibly can. If you have a board of realtors locally, just sign up and go to as many events as you possibly can get on a committee. If you possibly can, if you're in the mortgage space, like our boards allow us to do that here. So those are the things I tell all our loan officers, you got to be a part of that and you got to keep showing your face because what's going to happen is they're just going to say, Hey, I have this deal and I'm not sure about this lender. And next thing you know, you win the deal and then you build a relationship of a lifetime. So that's how these relationships, that's how these things start to happen. But you have to be top of mind with everybody, Pat's client database, and all the agents you possibly can. If you have financial planners. And your network, yeah, people that you know. A question I didn't ask when you talked about your volume. So you got to the 100 million mark. Like how many files was that for you? Because like some markets, the mortgages are much larger. So like California. So what's yeah. it like in your market? That year at the 100, at the 100 million marks, I think I was doing close to 400 units. 
Yeah. Um, so like in my market, you know, we're averaging five to 600,000 alone. So, wow. you know, so the thing about volume is it's a bit deceptive because units are actually a measure of work. Volume is not a measure of work. Volume is just a measure of like your market conditions. It could be like, who knows your client type. So that's a lot of loans. And so like in a 65 million year, 60 million year, what, how many loans would that be? Last year I did just under 200. I think I did 193 or something. Yeah. So like in my market, if you did 200, you'd be doing a hundred million for sure. So I actually like units for that reason. Yeah. I, I find I, the people I, in markets like yours actually are more efficient. When I get to talk to people that are in markets with smaller loan sizes, they tend to just subconsciously do more loans. It's almost like the little brother that chases the big brother. So you're looking at the guy in the big market. He's doing 100 million. Why can't I? Well, he's doing you know 70% of the loans you are, but you don't realize that. And all of a sudden you're just, I find that often these uh, smaller loan markets tend to be make very productive loan officers. Great way to look at that. Great way to look at that. Yeah, that's awesome. So, okay, where can people find you online? This has been an awesome conversation. It's different than I used to do, but I really appreciate it. So where can they find your book? What's your book called? All that good stuff. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's Thriving in the Storm, Nine Principles to Overcome Any Adversity. And it's on wherever books are sold, Amazon. And they can also reach out, thrivinginthestorm.com. I've actually been doing a lot of agent mindset classes and doing it around the country, just helping agents and loan officers get unstuck a little bit and uh, knowing that they're capable of way more than they ever thought. And just kind of living in that thriving mindset that we talked about where it's zest for life, enthusiasm, you know, happiness, joy, peace. And instead of staying stuck and down low where you're not doing anything productive. So those are some of the things that we're working on with folks. Right. The cool thing about gratitude, it inoculates you from a lot of other bad mental habits. Like you cannot be in a state of gratitude and a state of, you know, depression or frustration at the same time because they don't exist. And so because, you know, the media and everything is, they're not pushing you to gratitude. They're just trying to get your attention so they can sell ads to you. But if you cultivate that, man, it becomes really powerful. Like I think you can develop it as a superpower. So awesome. I think it's cool, man. I hope I get to meet you sometime. I know I'm planning it. My son and I do this thing once a year. We go to a different football stadium. Like we want to do all of them eventually. So we've been to a few. And so we haven't gone to the Patriots yet. But, uh, you know, who knows if I end up down there, I'll, I'll hit you up. And uh, if you're a football guy. Um, oh, yeah, I'm a season ticket holder. Oh, there you go. You're going to be there anyway. So you could uh, reach out to me. I can help you with some tickets. Okay. Yeah. Cause man, I love going to live football. There's nothing better than going to a live. We went to the Vegas last year, uh, yeah, Vegas yeah. stadium, which was, you've been to that one? No, I haven't been to the no, new stadium now. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so we're, we're digressing. Sorry guys, this is a podcast, but I'm just talking football now. So thank you so much, man. I really appreciate you. And we'll be talking soon. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks again for listening to that conversation. Go check out Bill's book. And again, I can't emphasize enough the importance of mindset. My previous episode from last week on my rookie show, I talked about a strategy called Jedi Mind Tricks for mortgage brokers that literally changed my life when it came to mindset. Go check that out if you haven't already. And this next segment, I talked to Ben about the maturity process of reverse mortgages. Hey, Ben, welcome to Ask the Experts. Hey, Scott, good to be back. Hey, so what topic are we going to jump into today? Yes, we spend a lot of time with brokers talking about getting into a reverse mortgage, right? And uh, brokers obviously spend a lot of time with, you know, talking to their clients, but the same thing, probably spend a little bit less time talking about what happens at the end, right? The maturity process of a reverse mortgage. But we still get a lot of questions from clients on different elements of the maturity process. And so I uh, figured I'd kind of walk through a couple of questions and how we answer them. And walk through it. Okay, cool. So basically the maturity process of a reverse mortgage. So hit me with the first sort of question you typically get. 
Yeah, so one of the first thing we get is sort of when does it come due, right? So reverse mortgages have a rate reset term, right? Like on our website, you'll see that we're advertising a five-year fixed rate reverse mortgage. Unlike a regular mortgage, this is not a term, right? And that's something that actually a lot of brokers still are still confused by. You know, the reverse mortgage cannot be called at this time. It's not due. It doesn't need to be renewed. It doesn't need to be refinanced. The only thing that happens at that point in time is the rate reset to whatever the prevailing market rate is for a reverse mortgage of that term at that time. So when does the mortgage become due? That only happens at a maturity event. And the way we describe a maturity event is basically when the client no longer occupies their home as their principal residence, right? So whether they've passed away, they've sold their home, or they've moved into a long-term care facility. So they no longer occupy the home is the key thing. So, okay, it makes sense. And then, so how do you get notified of this? So like, how would you know it just at a curiosity reverse mortgage holder, how do you know that they're still living in the house or that they haven't passed away? Like, do you get notified or something? Yeah, I mean, so obviously it's in the documentation that the families are sort of obligated to notify us. Typically what will happen is in, in practice, perhaps it's, you know, 30 days after something like that, you know, one of the adult children, whoever the executor is of the estate will be going through the paperwork, will be looking at, you know, all these things like title of the home. You know, probably they would have known that their parents had a reverse mortgage in place, but if not, obviously they will find out about it at that time. And then we'll typically hear from the sort of the adult child at that point uh, as they work through the sort of the resolution of the estate. So what about if the whole case okay, so if somebody passes away, that's a pretty like that's a concrete thing. But if they move out, like when do you get notified of that? Same again, you wouldn't know unless they got to notify you, right? Correct? Yeah, exactly. They have to notify us. We basically will do annual checkups. We send like an annual acknowledgement where people need to kind of confirm that they're still residing in the property uh, right. at least six months a year and things like that. You know, if we don't hear back, um, you know, we'll sign a property manager and whatnot. But um, right. that's sort of how it works. Okay. So when it comes to what's the next sort of question that you get up on the maturity process? So building on that is really like, so well, that's when it's due, but when does it need to be paid back? Right. So, um, I mean, obviously if somebody sells their home, it's immediate, <laughs> just like any mortgage. If the borrowers pass away, and this is obviously the last of the borrowers, right? So if it's a couple, the first person passes away, we ask to get notified. So we at least have that information for our records, but it's only when the last borrower passes away. And then it's six months after that, the mortgage needs to be paid back. And why six months? It basically just gives families enough time to you know, resolve the estate, right? Figure out what they want to do with that property. In almost all cases, they'll just sell the home and they'll get paid out of proceeds. But we've had cases where, for example, it's a recreational property where like the parents have moved into a lakefront cottage, something like that is their primary residence. The children want to keep it in the family. And so they'll just, you know, refinance it. I see. Okay. So that's to be paid back under those properties sold. They moved out into something else. Yeah. And then in the last instance, if they move in, you know, and we've had cases like this where the borrowers move into a, you know, a care facility, but they continue to own the home. The mortgages do a year after that happens. And that's really basically just to uh, enable the possibility of like transitory stays, people going into some type of care situation and then coming back home. Yeah, because it does happen. My grandma would, you know, she went into a place and they came back home. And then sometimes they don't know that they're not going to come back home. Sometimes it's like you go in because you fell down or whatever. And then it turns out you're not going to go back home. So you don't always know. It's not always clear. So. Yeah. So the next thing is basically, you know, how much do I owe, right? So um, it goes without saying principal and, and all the interest that's been accrued since the time of the mortgage was uh, was issued. There may or may not be a prepayment charge, right? There are prepayment charges on reverse mortgages typically, you know, around call it four to five percent in the first year, three to four percent in the second year, two to three percent in the third year, and then three months interest thereafter. Um, mm -hmm. There is a 50% discount typically applied if the reason for the early payment is that they've moved into a care facility. And then there's typically a 100% discount. So basically no prepayment charge if the reason for the payment is uh, that the borrowers have passed away. Right. 
Okay, cool. You guys are a newer company, but historically, what is the sort of time that people typically keep a reverse mortgage? Do you know, like what on average, on, on average, it's about 10 years, but obviously it's a pretty okay. big variance. You know, you'll yeah. have some people paying back, you know, within the first year, and then you'll have some people that hold on to it for 30 years. Right. The average is about 10 years that somebody will have a reverse mortgage. So yeah. interesting. Is there anything else that you think brokers should be aware of when it comes to like the whole maturity process of reverse mortgages? Yeah. And so this is one of the common questions is just in this last one is basically, you know, okay, so say it is that 30 year case, right? And now all of a sudden the reverse mortgage is worth, uh, you know, a lot more than the value of my home. What happens in that case, right? This question is the reason why reverse mortgages kind of got a bad name back in the day. It's because, uh -huh. um, you know, at that time, there weren't these product features that have been introduced since then. But any legitimate reverse mortgage provider these days offers what's called an NNEG or a no negative equity guarantee, right? Which means that we eat the difference. The most you'd ever owe is basically the sale proceeds of the home. Well, I should say your estate, whatever owe is the sale proceeds right. of the home. That's the most. And there's you know, never be on the hook for that difference. So they call it NNEG. NNEG. So when is this no probably? Guarantee. Yeah, exactly. 80s, you know, 90s. I mean, there's still people out there that basically offer something that they say is a reverse mortgage or like, you know, reverse mortgage-ish. You know, they have a term on them, they have repayment terms, and they don't have this no negative equity feature. So, you know, it's yeah. not a reverse mortgage unless it has that feature. Right. That's kind of an important point. And also puts people's mind at ease too. Like, we all hope we're going to live longer, provided we're healthy and stuff. So then, you know, I hate to say this, we kind of want you to not make money, but I know you're going to, but like, you know, it's kind of like you take the thing and then you're like, well, hopefully it works out. I don't know if that sounds bad, but you know what I'm saying? Like as a, as a borrower, <laughs> now that I'm almost 55, I'm thinking, well, I want to take a reverse mortgage and have it with you for 45 years. And you'd be like, we made no money on Scott. I'm just kidding. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you'd be like, literally we lost $500,000 on his reverse mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just teasing. All right. So if you guys are listening to this, disregard all that nonsense I was talking about, but you can go check out Ben and his team at bloomfin.ca. They're amazing. Uh, they've been growing like crazy and they've got experts too. One, they can help you with reverse mortgages. So you work with the client. And I know that like the number of brokers that are doing reverse mortgages is going up right now because it's a function of the economy. And so there's two ways. One, you can do it yourself and they'll pay you or they'll help you with it. They can, yeah, it's, it's a function of the economy and also just a function of like over the last two years, I think brokers are really just catching on to this product. And uh, yeah. you know, it used to be all direct to consumer sales and now the broker market is totally taking off. And so I think people are realizing this is a, a valuable tool. Yeah, like so economy, demographics, and then inflation cutting into, you know, people on fixed income have made these types of products far more valuable. So check them out at bloomfin.ca and uh, Ben and his team can help you. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Scott. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of my conversation with Bill and Ben, like Bill and Ben's excellent adventure. Check out Bloom Finance if you're looking for reverse mortgage stuff. And again, I encourage you to check out Bill's book. Finally, if you're listening to this episode, I encourage you to go to ilovemortgagebrokering.com. You can set up a free power search account where you can search all the past episodes. It's keyword search savings. So anything to do with mindset and do with financial advisors, realtors, you can jump right to those episodes. The only trick is make sure you go to full screen mode so you can actually see the text as well as see the spot on the video. That'll work great for you. Check it out. Thanks again for listening to this episode and I will see you on the next show. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.